Chapter 36, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In all his public declarations, the Emperor Leo assumes the authority and professes the affection of a father for his son, Anthemius, with whom he had divided the administration of the universe. The situation, and perhaps the character of Leo, dissuaded him from exposing his person to the toils and dangers of an African war. But the powers of the Eastern Empire were strenuously exerted to deliver Italy and the Mediterranean from the Vandals, and Genseric, who had so long oppressed both the land and sea, was threatened from every side with a formidable invasion. The campaign was opened by a bold and successful enterprise by the prefect Heraclius. The troops of Egypt, Thebius, and Libya were embarked under his command, and the Arabs, with a train of horses and camels, opened the roads of the desert. Heraclius landed on the coast of Tripoli, surprised and subdued the cities of that province, and prepared, by a laborious march, which Cato had formerly executed, to join the imperial army under the walls of Carthage. The intelligence of this loss extorted from Genseric some insidious and ineffectual propositions of peace, but he was still more seriously alarmed by the reconciliation of Marcellinus with the two empires. The independent patrician had been persuaded to acknowledge the legitimate title of Anthemius, whom he accompanied in his journey to Rome. The Dalmatian fleet was received into the harbors of Italy. The active valor of Marcellinus expelled the Vandals from the island of Sardinia and the languid efforts of the West added some weight to the immense preparations of the Eastern Romans. The expense of the naval armament which Leo sent against the Vandals has been distinctly ascertained, and the curious and instructive account displays the wealth of the declining empire. The royal demesnes, or private patrimony of the prince, supplied 17,000 pounds of gold. 47,000 pounds of gold and 700,000 of silver were levied and paid into the treasury by the Praetorian prefects, but the cities were reduced to extreme poverty, and the diligent calculation of fines and forfeitures, as a valuable object of the revenue, does not suggest the idea of a just or a merciful administration. The whole expense, by whatsoever means it was defrayed, of the African campaign amounted to the sum of 130,000 pounds of gold, about five millions two hundred thousand pounds sterling, at a time when the value of money appears from the comparative price of corn to have been somewhat higher than in the present age. The fleet that sailed from Constantinople to Carthage consisted of eleven 1 hundred and thirteen ships, and the number of soldiers and marines exceeded one hundred thousand men. Basiliscus, the brother of the Empress Verina, was entrusted with this important command. His sister, the wife of Leo, had exaggerated the merit of his former exploits against the Scythians, but the discovery of his guilt or incapacity was reserved for the African war, and his friends could only save his military reputation by asserting that he had conspired with Aspar to spare Genseric and to betray the last hope of the Western Empire. Experience has shown that success of an invader most commonly depends on the vigor and celerity of his operations. The strength and sharpness of the first impressions are blunted by delay. The health and spirit of the troops are insensibly languished on a, in a distant climate. The naval and military force, a mighty effort which perhaps can never be repeated, is silently consumed, and every hour which is wasted in negotiation 
accustoms the enemy to contemplate and examine those hostile terrors which, on their first appearance, he deemed irresistible. The formidable navy of Basiliscus pursued its prosperous navigation from the Thracian Bosphorus to the coasts of Africa. He landed his troops at Cape Bona, or the Promontory of Mercury, about forty miles from Carthage. The army of Heraclius and the fleet of Marcellinus either joined or seconded the imperial lieutenant, and the Vandals who opposed his progress by sea or by land were successively vanquished. If Basiliscus had seized the moment of consternation and boldly advanced to the capital, Carthage must have surrendered, and the kingdom of the Vandals was extinguished. Genseric beheld the danger with firmness, and eluded it with his veteran dexterity. He protested, in the most respectful language, that he was ready to submit his person and his dominions to the will of the emperor. But he requested a truce of five days to regulate the terms of his submission, and it was universally believed that his secret liberality contributed to the success of this public negotiation. Instead of obstinately refusing whatever indulgence his enemy so earnestly solicited, the guilty or the credulous Basiliscus consented to the fatal truce, and his imprudent security seemed to proclaim that he already considered himself as the conqueror of Africa. During this short interval the wind became favorable to the designs of Genseric. He manned his largest ships of war with the bravest of Moors and Vandals, and they towed after many of them many barks filled with combustible materials. In the obscurity of the night, these destructive vessels were impelled against the unguarded and unsuspecting fleet of the Romans, who were awakened by the sense of their instant danger. Their close and crowded order assisted the progress of the fire, which was communicated with rapid and irresistible violence, and the noise of the wind, the crackling of the flames, and the dissonant cries of the soldiers and mariners, who could neither command nor obey, increased the horror of the nocturnal tumult. Whilst they labored to extricate themselves from the fire-ships, and to save at least a part of the navy, the galleys of Genseric assaulted them with temperate and disciplined valor, and many of the Romans, who had escaped the fury of the flames, were destroyed or taken by the victorious vandals. Among the events of that disastrous night, the heroic, or rather desperate, courage of John, one of the principal officers of Basiliscus, has rescued his name from oblivion. When the ship which he had bravely defended was almost consumed, he threw himself in his armor into the sea, disdainfully rejected the esteem and pity of Genso, the son of Genseric, who pressed him to accept honorable quarter, and sunk under the waves, exclaiming, with his last breath, that he would never fall alive into the hands of those impious dogs. Actuated by a far different spirit, Basiliscus, whose station was the most remote from danger, disgracefully fled in the beginning of the engagement, returned to Constantinople with the loss of more than half of his fleet and army, and sheltered his guilty head in the sanctuary of St. Sophia, till his sister, by her tears and entreaties, could obtain his pardon from the indignant emperor. Heraclius effected his retreat through the desert. Marcellinus returned to Sicily, where he was assassinated, perhaps at the instigation of Ricimer, by one of his own captains, and the king of the Vandals expressed his surprise and satisfaction that the Romans themselves should remove from the world his most formidable antagonists. After the failure of this great expedition, Genseric again became the tyrant of the sea. The coasts of Italy, Greece, and Asia were again exposed to his revenge and avarice. Tripoli and Sardinia returned to his obedience, and he added Sicily to the number of his provinces, and before he died, 
in the fullness of years and of glory, he beheld the final extinction of the empire of the West. During his long and active reign, the African monarch had studiously cultivated the friendship of the barbarians of Europe, whose arms he might employ in a seasonable and effectual diversion against the two empires. After the death of Attila, he renewed his alliance with the Visigoths of Gaul, and the sons of the elder Theodoric, who successfully reigned over that warlike nation, were easily persuaded by the sense of interest to forget the cruel affront which Genseric had inflicted on their sister. The death of the emperor Majorian delivered Theodoric II from the restraint of fear, and perhaps of honor. He violated his recent treaty with the Romans, and the ample territory of Norbonne, which he firmly united to his dominions, became the immediate reward of his perfidy. The selfish policy of Ricimer encouraged him to invade the provinces, which were in the possession of Aegidius, his rival. But the active count, by the defense of Arles and the victory of Orléans, saved Gaul, and checked during his lifetime the progress of the Visigoths. Their ambition was soon rekindled, and the design of extinguishing the Roman Empire in Spain and Gaul was conceived and almost completed in the reign of Euric, who assassinated his brother Theodoric, and displayed, in a more savage temper, superior abilities both in peace and war. He passed the Pyrenees at the head of a numerous army, subdued the cities of Saragossa and Pampeluna, vanquished in battle the martial nobles of the Tarragonese province, carried his victorious arms into the heart of Lusitania, and permitted the Suevi to hold the kingdom of Galicia under the Gothic monarchy of Spain. The efforts of Euric were not less vigorous or successful in Gaul, and throughout the country that extends from the Pyrenees to the Rhone and the Loire, Berry and Avignon were the only cities or dioceses which refused to acknowledge him as their master. In the defense of Clermont, their principal town, the inhabitants of Auvergne, sustained with inflexible resolution the miseries of war, pestilence, and famine, and the Visigoths, relinquishing the fruitless siege, suspended the hopes of that important conquest. The youth of the province were animated by the heroic and almost incredible youth of Aedictius, the son of the emperor Avitus, who made a desperate sally with only eighteen horsemen, boldly attacked the Gothic army, and after maintaining a flying skirmish, retired safe and victorious within the walls of Clermont. His charity was equal to his courage. In a time of extreme scarcity, four thousand poor were fed at his expense, and his private influence levied an army of Burgundians for the deliverance of Auvergne. From his victories alone, the faithful citizens of Gaul derived any hope of safety or freedom, and even such virtues were insufficient to avert the impending ruin of their country since they were anxious to learn, from his authority and example, whether they should prefer the alternative of exile or servitude. The public confidence was lost, and the resources of the state were exhausted, and the Gauls had too much reason to believe that Anthemius, who resigned in Italy, was incapable of protecting his distressed subjects beyond the Alps. The feeble emperor could only procure for their defense the service of twelve thousand British auxiliaries. Real Themis, one of the independent kings or chieftains of the island, was persuaded to transport his troops to the continent of Gaul. He sailed up the Loire and established his quarters in Berry, where the people complained of these oppressive allies till they were destroyed or dispersed by the arms of the Visigoths. One of the last acts of jurisdiction which the Roman Senate exercised over their subjects of Gaul was the trial and condemnation of Avandus, the praetorian prefect, 
Sidonius, who rejoices that he lived under a reign in which he might pity and assist a state criminal, has expressed with tenderness and freedom the faults of his indiscreet and unfortunate friend. From the perils which he had escaped, Arvandus imbibed confidence rather than wisdom, and such was the various though uniform imprudence of his behavior, that his prosperity must appear much more surprising than his downfall. The second prefecture, which he obtained within a term of five years, abolished the merit and popularity of his preceding administration. His easy temper was corrupted by flattery and exasperated by opposition. He was forced to satisfy his importunate creditors with the spoils of the province. His capricious insolence offended the nobles of Gaul, and he sunk under the weight of the public hatred. The mandate of his disgrace summoned him to justify his conduct before the Senate, and he passed the Sea of Tuscany with a favorable wind, the presage, as he vainly imagined, of his future fortunes. A decent respect was still observed for the praetorian rank, and on his arrival at Rome, Arvandus was committed to the hospitality, rather than to the custody, of Flavius Acellus, the count of the sacred largesse, who resided in the capital. He was eagerly pursued by his accusers, the four deputies of Gaul, who were all distinguished by their birth, their dignities, or their eloquence. In the name of a great province, and according to the forms of Roman jurisprudence, they instituted a civil and criminal action, requiring such restitution as might compensate the losses of individuals, and such punishments as might satisfy the justice of the state. Their charges of corrupt oppression were numerous and weighty, but they placed their secret dependence on a letter which they had intercepted, and which they could prove, by the evidence of a secretary, to have been dictated by Arvandus himself. The author of this letter seemed to dissuade the king of the Goths from a peace with the Greek emperor. He suggested the attack of the Britons on the Loire, and he recommended a division of Gaul according to the law of nations between the Visigoths and the Burgundians. These pernicious schemes, which a friend could only palliate by the reproaches of vanity and indiscretion, were susceptible of a treasonable interpretation, and the deputies had artly resolved not to produce their most formidable weapons till the decisive moment of the conquest. But their intentions were discovered by the zeal of Sidonius. He immediately apprised the unsuspecting criminal of his danger, and sincerely lamented, without any mixture of anger, the haughty presumption of Arvandus, who rejected and even resented the salutary advice of his friends. Ignorant of his real situation, Arvandus showed himself in the capital in the white robe of a candidate, accepted indiscriminate salutations and offers of service, examined the shops of the merchants, the silks and gems, sometimes with the indifference of a spectator, and sometimes with the intention of a purchaser, and complained of the times, of the senate, and of the prince, and of the delays of justice. His complaints were soon removed. An early day was fixed for his trial, and Arvandus appeared with his accusers before a numerous assembly of the Roman Senate. The mournful garb which they affected excited the compassion of the judges, and they were scandalized by the gay and splendid dress of their adversary, and when the prefect Arvandus, with the first of the Gallic deputies, was directed to take their places on the senatorial benches, the same contrast of pride and modesty was observed in their behavior. In this memorable judgment, which presented a lively image of the old republic, the Gauls exposed, with force and freedom, the grievances of the province, and as soon as the minds of the audience were sufficiently inflamed, they recited the fatal epistle. 
the obstinacy of Arvandus was founded on the strange supposition that a subject could not be convicted of treason unless he had actually conspired to assume the purple. As the paper was read, he repeatedly, and with a loud voice, acknowledged it for his genuine composition, and his astonishment was equal to his dismay when the unanimous voice of the Senate declared him guilty of a capital offense. By their decree, he was degraded from the rank of a prefect to the obscure condition of a plebeian, and ignominiously dragged by servile hands to the public prison. After a fortnight's adjournment, the Senate was again convened to pronounce the sentence of his death. But while he expected, in the island of Aesculapius, the expiration of the thirty days allowed by an ancient law to the vilest malefactors, his friends interposed, the emperor Anthemius relented, and the prefect of Gaul obtained the milder punishment of exile and confiscation. The faults of Arvandus might deserve compassion, but the impunity of Seronitus accused the justice of the Republic, till he was condemned and executed on the complaint of the people of Auvergne. That flagitious minister, the Catiline of his age and country, held a secret correspondence with the Visigoths to betray the province which he oppressed. His industry was continually exercised by the discovery of new taxes and obsolete offenses, and his extravagant vices would have inspired contempt if they had not excited fear and abhorrence. Such criminals were not beyond the reach of justice, but whatever might be the fault of Ricimer, that powerful barbarian was able to contend or to negotiate with the prince whose alliance he had condescended to accept. The peaceful and prosperous reign which Anthemius had promised to the West was soon clouded by misfortune and discord. Ricimer, apprehensive or impatient of a superior, retired from Rome and fixed his residence at Milan, an advantageous situation, either to invite or to repel the warlike tribes which were seated beyond the Alps and the Danube. Italy was gradually divided between two independent and hostile kingdoms, and the nobles of Liguria, who trembled at the near approach of a civil war, fell prostrate to the feet of the patrician, and conjured him to spare their unhappy country. For my own part, replied Ricimer, in a tone of insolent moderation, I am still inclined to embrace the friendship of the Galatian. But who will undertake to appease his anger, or to mitigate the pride which always rises in proportion to our submission? They informed him that Epiphanius, bishop of Pavia, united the wisdom of the serpent with the innocence of the dove, and appeared confident that the eloquence of such an ambassador might prevail against the strongest opposition, either of interest or passion. The recommendation was improved, and Epiphanius, assuming the benevolent office of mediation, proceeded without delay to Rome, where he was received with the honors due to his merit and reputation. The oration of a bishop in favor of peace might be easily supposed. He argued that, in all possible circumstances, the forgiveness of injuries must be an act of mercy, or magnanimity, or prudence, and he seriously admonished the emperor to avoid a contest with a fierce barbarian, which might be fatal to himself, and must be ruinous to his dominions. Anthemius acknowledged the truth of his maxims, but he deeply felt, with grief and indignation, the behavior of Ricimer, and his passion gave eloquence and energy to his discourse. What favors, he warmly exclaimed, have we refused to this ungrateful man? What provocations have we not endured? Regardless of the majesty of the purple, I gave my daughter to a goth. I sacrificed my own blood to the safety of the republic. 
the liberality which ought to have secured the internal attachment of Ricimer has exasperated him against his benefactor. What wars has he not excited against the empire? How often has he instigated and assisted the fury of hostile nations? Shall I now accept his perfidious friendship? Can I hope that he will respect the engagements of a treaty, who has already violated the duties of a son? But the anger of Anthemius evaporated in these passionate exclamations. He insensibly yielded to the proposals of Epiphanius, and the bishop returned to his diocese, with the satisfaction of restoring the peace of Italy by a reconciliation, of which the sincerity and continuance might be reasonably suspected. The clemency of the emperor was extorted from his weakness, and Ricimer suspended his ambitious designs till he had secretly prepared the engines, with which he resolved to subvert the throne of Anthemius. The mask of peace and moderation was then thrown aside. The army of Ricimer was fortified by a numerous reinforcement of Burgundians and Oriental Suevi. He disclaimed all allegiance to the Greek emperor, marched from Milan to the gates of Rome, and, fixing his camp on the banks of the Anio, impatiently expected the arrival of Olibrius, his imperial candidate. The senator Olibrius, of the Ancian family, might esteem himself the lawful heir of the Western Empire. He had married Placidia, the younger daughter of Valentinian, after she was restored by Genseric, who still detained her sister Eudocia as the wife, or rather as the captive, of his son. The king of the Vandals supported, by threats and solicitations, the fair pretensions of his Roman ally, and assigned, as one of the motives of the war, the refusal of the senate and people to acknowledge their lawful prince, and the unworthy preference which they had given to a stranger. The friendship of the public enemy might render Olibrius still more unpopular to the Italians, but when Ricimer mediated the ruin of the emperor Anthemius, he tempted, with the offer of a diadem, the candidate who could justify his rebellion by an illustrious name and a royal alliance. The husband of Placidia, who, like most of his ancestors, had been invested with the consular dignity, might have continued to enjoy a secure and splendid fortune in the peaceful residence of Constantinople, nor does he appear to have been tormented by such a genius as cannot be amused or occupied unless by the administration of an empire. Yet Olibrius yielded to the importunities of his friends, perhaps of his wife, rashly plunged into the dangers and calamities of a civil war, and with the secret connivance of the Emperor Leo, accepted the Italian purple, which was bestowed and resumed at the capricious will of a barbarian. He landed without obstacle, for Genseric was the master of the sea, either at Ravenna or the port of Ostia, and immediately proceeded to the camp of Ricimer, where he was received as the sovereign of the western world. The patrician, who had extended his posts from the Anio to the Milvian Bridge, already possessed two quarters of Rome, the Vatican, and the Janiculum, which are separated by the Tiber from the rest of the city, and it may be conjectured that an assembly of seceding senators imitated, in the choice of Olibrius, the forms of a legal election. But the body of the senate and people firmly adhered to the cause of Anthemius, and the more effectual support of a Gothic army enabled him to prolong his reign and the public distress by a resistance of three months, which produced the concomitant evils of famine and pestilence. At length Ricimer made a furious assault on the bridge of Hadrian, or Sant'Angelo, and the narrow pass was defended with equal valor by the Goths, till the death of Gilimir, their leader. The victorious troops, breaking down every barrier, rushed with irresistible violence into the heart of the city, and Rome, if we may use the language of a contemporary pope, 
was subverted by the civil fury of Anthemius and Ricimer. The unfortunate Anthemius was dragged from his concealment and inhumanly massacred by the command of his son-in-law, who thus added a third, or perhaps a fourth, emperor to the number of his victims. The soldiers who united the rage of factious citizens with the savage manners of barbarians were indulged without control in the license of rapine and murder. The crowd of slaves and plebeians, who were unconcerned in the event, could only gain by the indiscriminate pillage, and the face of the city exhibited the strange contrast of stern cruelty and dissolute intemperance. Forty days after this calamitous event, the subject not of glory but of guilt, Italy was delivered by a painful disease from the tyrant Ricimer, who bequeathed the command of his army to his nephew, Gundobald, one of the princes of the Burgundians. In the same year, all the principal actors in this great revolution were removed from the stage, and the whole reign of Olybrius, whose death does not betray any symptoms of violence, is included within the term of seven months. He left one daughter, the offspring of his marriage with Placidia, and the family of the great Theodosius, transplanted from Spain to Constantinople, was propagated in the female line as far as the eighth generation. End of chapter 36, part 4